So here we are, another day of retreat. Is everybody making it out there? (laughs) It can be challenging, to say the least. (laughs) So the Buddhist teachings, um, when he first began to teach, they called the teachings the way, just the way, the way to the end of suffering. And I, I kind of like the way that, the way that sounds, just the way forward, the way to, the way to freedom. So I was thinking that we're born into this human world, into this body, with very little understanding of why we're here. Now, what are we doing here? What is this? It's very mysterious. You know, we're, we appear here. Other people appear here, stay for a while, disappear. Nobody knows where, they're, where they went, right? Very impermanent. Very few people actually understand or know the purpose of this human life. So we're on this epic hero's journey in some way without really knowing where, we go, where we're going or what we'll need. So intuitively, at some point, we begin to wake up to think, okay, so this, what is this about? Some way we've been to understand it is about the path to peace and happiness. So we, we kind of come to that understanding. But along the way, we are pointed in a lot of different directions on this journey. We want happiness. We want peace. And there's a lot of influence of people telling us how to get that peace. So some people say, it's the road here. Friend, go this way. Right? <coughs> happiness is about achieving. It's about maybe accumulating things, money. Right? So that's the path. Go down there. And they believe that wholeheartedly. And so we like, okay, we go down that path. Somebody else might say it's the path of fame, right? Having a good reputation, being well-known, loved, adored. Follow that path. So we, we go down that one for a while. But what's important to understand is that a lot of these paths They don't really lead us where we want to be, and that is lasting happiness. We want to feel happy. We want to be at peace. So there's a lot of confusion in my family growing up. A lot of paths were pointed out. You could go here, you could go there. But a lot of that was confusion. Nobody really knew. And so I wandered around a lot. I think we all have wandered looking.
And so in the midst of that, the Buddha discovered a path. He didn't invent this path. What he did is you could say he cleared the way of a very ancient path that was already there. He cleared a way. Imagine that there's a path through the woods here. And every year they have to clear these paths, otherwise the leaves and everything, it, it covers it, right? So every year the staff here, they take away the debris, they remove the obstacles so it can be seen. So in some ways that's what the Buddha did. He removed all the obstacles to this ancient path and he said, friends, the path to peace and happiness is this way. This is the road. I didn't invent it. It's been here since the beginning of time. Many beings have walked this path. And at times the path has been covered, unrecognizable and forgotten. But he cleared it away and here we are on this path. So in some way it's amazing that you've arrived here to ask a deeper question. And that deeper question is, where is lasting happiness? What is true freedom? And you've all probably wandered many different roads to get here. But you've arrived at this path and this time as if by divine appointment right here, this whole group of people. It's beautiful. And so this path is about understanding the truth. This journey is about understanding the truth. One of my favorite poems to start this talk is by Mary Oliver, and it's called The Journey. She writes, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. Though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So that's what we are doing here in some way. We're saving the only life we can save, our own sanity. <laughs> it's not easy to be on retreat and look directly at your own mind, <laughs> all the thoughts. We're going to talk about that some tonight. As we kind of follow along a little bit with the Buddha, so we're going to kind of follow in his footsteps. One of the things that I think is important that the Buddha realized after his enlightenment experience, 
So for some of you who know, the Buddha left the palace. He was this great prince, tremendous wealth, adoration, love. And he left because he became unhappy. He thought there must be more to life than this. So he left and he sought his way. He encountered the heavenly messengers, which Larry spoke about last night. He was motivated to wake up. And so he sat and he went into the forest and practiced for almost six years, pretty intensely. And so then he went to the Bodhi tree and he had his great night of awakening. And I said that he un he awakened to understand all things. And the next day, as dawn broke after his great experience and his enlightenment, tears began to flow from his eyes as he looked around the world. And it said that he deeply was impacted by this thought. Human beings everywhere are looking for happiness but are doing the very things that lead to unhappiness through not knowing. So we follow these paths, looking for peace, looking for happiness, but through not understanding the way things are, that leads, we lead to more unhappiness. And that deeply affected him because he thought, my God, everyone is doing this. So you think how many people are on the planet right now? Seven billion? Everybody looking desperately to become happy, but doing the very things that lead to unhappiness. So this is, in some way, this is the heart of the Four Noble Truths, is what is true, what actually leads to happiness. What do we need to know? So the interesting thing about the Four Noble Truths is I didn't used to like this teaching at all. <laughs> When I would be in this very hall, uh, long retreats again and again, the teacher would say, tonight, the Four Noble Truths. And I think, oh, God, suffering, suffering, suffering. <laughs> They're obsessed with it. Uh, Joseph and I were laughing because I led this little revolt one time during the middle of a three-month retreat. In the Q&A, I said, we need to talk about joy and happiness, all this suffering. Uh, I can't take it. Uh, <laughs> And I remember I even left a note with one of the other teachers suggesting we have an African dance class to cheer up the yogis. <laughs> it's too somber around here. We need some fun, you know. And uh, it's true. Joseph has a lot of funny stories about my behavior and antics. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but it took a while for me to understand what the Buddha was saying because what would happen was they would say the truth of suffering and I would shut down. Suffering, I, wanted, you know, I, I didn't want to hear about that, although I was clearly sitting in the back of this room in tremendous suffering, <laughs> right? I wanted to hear about joy, so I didn't understand this teaching in some way. I didn't understand that it was actually leading me somewhere. I didn't hear the second noble truth and the third noble truth. It was just shut down at suffering, you know, in life they're suffering. And I wanted to believe that, no, 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 there could be other paths, I'll figure it out. The Buddha, I don't know if he was right or not, you know. Uh, you know, I have fun, I'm happy. And all that is true, it's like, oh, we are, there's moments of happiness. That's not to deny that. Life can be 
so beautiful and so connective and so exciting, filled with so many interesting things. That's, we're not denying that. But what the Buddha is talking about here is what lasts? What is lasting? That's the key thing that I'm going to talk about more tonight. So I had this very rocky relationship, and it took a lot of time for me to understand, and I started to study the Four Noble Truths. What is he saying? So simple in some, some way, you know, that we can overlook the magnitude, the, in, the beauty of what he's pointing to, that it is freedom. And so I began to study this more and more. So the Buddha says the first noble truth that Larry covered some last night, um, in life, there's suffering. Very simple, right? We all get that, right? If you sat through today, did anyone not suffer today at some point? If not, you know, you could talk to Joseph and I and we'll put you in another advanced track. <laughs> I'm sure you had some kind of suffering, a body, mind, you know. And that's kind of what this is pointing to, that it's not your fault. It's just happening. You didn't order that. Did you wake up in this morning and say, I'll take three hours of rage, two hours of knee pain and anxiety all the rest of the day? No. In some way, it's doing itself. It just arises. There's causes and conditions, but it arises. If we could choose, we would choose bliss, right? We would choose love every moment. And so this is pointing to that truth, no matter who you are, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you look like a supermodel or not, you suffer. That's the thing. It doesn't matter. You will encounter it. You will encounter unpleasant things. You wake up, you stub your toe. It's unpleasant. You, it's just life. In some way, we come to terms with that, and then there's a relief because we stop thinking we've got it wrong when we do suffer. Right? So we wake up in the morning, we feel sorrow. Well, I was so happy yesterday. What did I do wrong? How do I get back to that? Maybe I need to find that seat by the window with that breeze coming in, that special pillow. You try to recreate it. It's impossible. So it's a new moment. So there's some kind of um, relief in just knowing that. You know, it's a universal truth. We can also, so the second noble truth is the origin of suffering, which is what I'm going to talk about mostly tonight, and that is attachment and craving, desire, clinging. And then the third noble truth is the complete end of suffering is attainable. Cessation is possible. This is what I didn't used to hear. I would get stuck on that first one, half the second one, and just shut down, right? The third noble truth is freedom is possible. And the fourth is the path. So I want to look at this also from an uh, indigenous, kind of a shamanic way, through a sort of an Ayurvedic way. So the first noble truth, there's an illness. The second, there's a cause of this illness. There's a cause. This is really important to see, that there's a cause to why there's pain and suffering. There's a cause to stress. The third, there's a cure. We can be 100% completely healed. If you went to the doctor and they said, you have this horrible disease, you would initially have a reaction, right? But then they said, friend, you can be 100% cured. Great, what do I have to do, right? 
Fourth noble truth is the treatment plan. It's the cure. It's what we need to do to heal. And so we can look at it in that way, that there's a cause of our illness. And in some way, when I'm in a lot of suffering, I feel ill. When my mind is filled with maybe greed or hatred, or uh, there's a way in which they, it can make you feel sick. You know, like a sickness has overcome you. And so that's the kind of the, the same way I like to look at it. And in some way, I look at this place. Often, I imagine this place as a great floating hospital, you know, and uh, we're all the physicians, you know, nurses. Give this person a little more metta, a little more walking. No, no, take that person off. Eight precepts, good for them. You know, each person has a little, each person has a little, you know, the teachers talk about that, a little treatment plan, you know. Here, tweak this, add that. And we do that all to help your mind stay balanced so that you can see the truth more deeply, so that you can receive the medicine in the best possible way. And it's the medicine of the truth. You sit here and you're digesting it, digesting it, digesting it. And it's mysterious, sitting in the present moment. And it heals us. It opens us. It's purifying us. That's what the Buddha is clearing away of this path is so important. This is the path to peace. It's like, here it is. So simple, we could overlook it, scratch our head. This is the path. <laughs> Sitting, one breath, two breath, one step, two step, and the whole of the Dharma unfolds. The whole way unfolds. The way. So what are we talking about here with this noble truth, the second noble truth? So there's a cause of our illness. This is good. This is to be, the first noble truth is to be investigated. The second noble truth, the cause is to be abandoned. So craving, clinging, desire. So let, let's look at this on retreat. So we sit here in a moment, right? Sitting along, suddenly a thought arises. <coughs> I wish I could have that latte, that, that chai latte I had. <laughs> or I wish I could have, I want, I need. Want, 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 moment by moment. Desire arises for something. Have you noticed this yet in your experience? <laughs> this constant craving. So let's look at it as far as sense pleasures. They call it pleasures of the senses. It's kind of an odd, I don't know, I didn't always relate to that. Sense, sense pleasure, desire for sense pleasure. But in some ways, that's what it is. So our senses, hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, smelling, we desire that. We want to see pleasant sights. We want to hear pleasant sounds. You know, we're always wanting, wanting, wanting. What's interesting about these sense pleasures, and it's not that they're wrong. So it's fine that we have a beautiful environment and we have flowers and we have music, but that's not lasting happiness. But what happens is we crave them like it is lasting happiness. Like if I could just get this thing, I'd be happy. I can remember being on retreat, a long retreat, and somebody, one of the uh, staff went out and got Ben and Jerry's ice cream for all the yogis, and they put it on the back of the table. And, 
all this desire rose in my mind for this ice cream. You know, it's been a long time. It's like very little that you can get here, right? If you're, <laughs> it's like, just give me that ice cream. It's been a long, hard day of crying and suffering. I, I just want that ice cream. And I can remember just watching my mind go through this big thing. And you know, in everyday life, I wouldn't even look twice at ice cream. It's like, okay, great, you know. But on retreat, where there's little around, and I thought if I could just get it, I'd feel better. So of course, I didn't eat my lunch. I just made a beeline to get the ice cream, right? The first one over there. No shame at all. <laughs> just scooping out of each one. <laughs> you know, I didn't want the tofu and brown rice. I wanted that. <laughs> But very similar to the experience Larry had, or he shared about last night, I ate it and it was just ice cream. It didn't alleviate, it wasn't Nibbana. You know what I mean? We think that if we get these things, that's going to be it. You know, and so we crave them. We crave, we crave. If I could just have that, if I could just see that girl, if I could just meet that person, if I just had that car, if I just... I mean, I'm, I use the ice cream, but let's take this on our real-life scale, a bigger scale here. If I could just have this, that would be it. And then we get it, and it's just something we have. We throw it in the closet, you know? There was a study at Harvard. It was so interesting. The teachers here were talking about it, but at Spirit Rock, they did this happiness survey where people uh, were given objects uh, that they wanted, and every single time, they overestimated the amount of happiness they would get from it. <laughs> if I had this new car, I would just be so happy, you know. And then they got it, right? They would get it. And the happiness was there, but every moment they had it, it would go down a little bit more and a little bit more. And they didn't live up to what we thought it would. You know, it just doesn't. And it's not that it's bad to have material items. It's not that at all, but it's relating to them like as if they're freedom. That's the problem. They're just objects. They're just objects. Also, the other thing with the study from Harvard was that people overestimated the amount of suffering that something would bring them, right? So they, they would imagine, you know, having to go to the dentist, oh, it's going to be horrible, oh, oh. and they would go, oh, it wasn't that bad. So we, we do it on, we overestimate happiness, we overproject on the suffering. So we're, we're a little out of balance on that. Uh, but that's all right, you know. The other thing is about um, things that we crave. The sense pleasures, you could say, of the senses is that they're, they wear out after a while, too. So say somebody, you have your partner at home, and you've had a long day, and you come home, and they stroke your hair, and you like it for a few moments. Thank you, support. If they kept doing that, how would you feel? <laughs> it would be insanity after a while. You would do anything to get them to stop. Stop touching my hair. <laughs> it was the same with the Ben and Jerry's experiment. One cup was good, two cups, uh, not so, you know, kind of good, you know. Three cups, it started to become hell after a while. <laughs> so even when we get something and we indulge in it, our, our liking of it changes. You know, we think we want something really bad, do it all day long. Well, what do you get? For reason you hate it, that thing that you wanted so bad, right? So 
that, that's to see that, that we're fickle, that it changes. You know, what we crave, what we crave uh, changes. It never satisfies us. Not permanently. It's like a moment of it's a moment hit, and you could see that with drugs and alcohol, right? People crave that. It was interesting growing up. My father uh, was addicted to cocaine, and so we lived. And I grew up in Long Beach, East Long Beach, Compton border in California. So it was crazy all the time. Helicopters and gangs. People look at me now and they, they don't think that when they meet me. But you probably grew up in a hippie commune with, you know. No, didn't grow up like that. <laughs> I grew up with all the violence of, you know, Southern California, you know. And so my father uh, was very addicted, had a very strong uh, cocaine addiction. And he was completely unable to connect to his children because of that, because everything was about feeding that, feeding that, feeding that, feeding that. And every time I saw him as a small child, he was just so much agitation and suffering, you know, just couldn't relax, just out and out. So eventually he left. I didn't see him for like 15 years. And when, you know, we reconnected and uh, we have a good relationship now, he's clean and sober. Um, but he always talks about that craving. He said, I feel so bad, you know, and he, uh, we weren't the first family that he had moved on from. He had abandoned several families, you know, I'm one of 10 children. And he, you know, now he's sort of dealing with all of that. You know, what does that mean to now have to look at that? And he just says, you know, he's so apologetic. He said, that craving had me. I couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't see anything else. And what he was willing to do to feed it, what are we doing to feed our addiction? You know, we harm ourselves actually, in the pursuit of these desires. We cause harm to ourselves and others. But here's the sad thing. We don't know that. We kind of know, but we're trying to be happy. We're doing the things that lead to unhappiness and trying to be happy. He said, I was just trying to be happy. And I thought, you know, at first it seemed like a good thing. And then it just caught me. So there's where desire is so powerful because every moment we have a choice, something comes into the mind. And desire is painful because it's in a state of frustration. When you're sitting here and you're wanting, you're not at peace because you, your mind is saying, I need something else other than this moment. I need something to be okay right now. I need another cushion. I need a romance. I need a note on the note board. I need something to be happy, right? And it's hard to be with that. That is suffering. So we go about looking around. How can I get rid of this? Uh, you know, and we, we start pursuing it. We start moving forward. So the Buddha is saying, friend, stop. This is the very cause of suffering. When desire arises in the mind, can we just sit with it? It's not permanent. It comes and waves. It goes. It comes. Can we sit? Can we know this state? Okay, this is clinging. This is desire. We have to be able to learn to do this. Because if we pursue them, we're, it's just samsara. You know, we go down all these paths. Samsara, I like that word a lot, samsara. You may know it, but it means endless wandering. 
So the Buddha is saying, that's what you've been doing. Like in your search for happiness, we endlessly wander. Wander, wander, looking this path, that path, looking for peace, doing the very things that create unhappiness to not seeing clearly. You know, I read a story, uh, not a story, an article about hamsters on a hamster wheel. You know they run two miles on that hamster wheel? (laughs) Two miles. And they think they're going somewhere, right? So here we are, we get on our wheel. Two miles later, get off, same cage. Okay, get back on. (laughs) It's kind of sad even to put that in there, isn't it? In a way, they think they're, you know, they've left the place. They haven't, you know? We are the hamsters. In some way, look at your own life. Where are you on the wheel? Where is it that we keep going in a circle, doing the same thing, same thing, same thing, same thing, up and up, same thing. And it's okay. It's, this is to be seen and to be looked at. It's not to be judged. This is how we wake up. This is how we see. We have to see. If I was to, not, if I was to go to the doctor and say, I don't want to know my illness. I don't want to know about it. I don't know how to cure it. Would I get better? The Four Noble Truths is saying, here's what's wrong. You have to look at this. There's an illness and there's an end. Here is the cause. If you had a disease and the doctor said, this is the cause, you're eating too much of this, we would stop, right? Oh, wow, thank you. Thank you for that information, right? So this is what the Buddha is saying. There's a cause. The cause is clinging. It gets deeper, though. I'll take it to uh, another, another level about the clinging. So one of the reasons that we suffer is because we cling after things that are inherently impermanent. So as you sit here, everything's arising and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing. How many emotions have you had today? Right? You wake up, ah, feeling good, hit a little low point after breakfast, right? Fear, anxiety, sorrow, then maybe the afternoon is blissful, right? Pride, I'm doing great. You know, all the whole range on this roller coaster. But the good thing is that it's all impermanent. But there's some way in which the mind doesn't like that impermanency. We look for stability. We want things to last. And their very nature is not to last. This is by Pema Chodron, uh, the American nun who's written so many beautiful books. She wrote, she writes, we know that all is impermanent. We know that everything wears out. Although we can buy this truth intellectually, emotionally we have a deep-rooted aversion to it. We want permanence. We expect permanence. Our natural tendency is to seek security. We believe we can find it. To put it concisely, we suffer when we resist the noble and irrefutable truth of impermanence and death. We expect that what is always changing should be graspable, predictable. We are born with a craving for resolution and security that governs our thoughts, words, and actions. We are like people in a boat that is falling apart, trying to hold on to the water. So in some way, that's exactly it, right? So we try to hold on to everything. And it's changing. Its very nature is to change. This is a huge insight and a powerful one. We're impermanent. We're all here in this room. 
very soon will disperse. This, in, this moment is impermanent. This retreat is impermanent. This body is impermanent. You know, we're a flash of lightning in the sky. We appear, we dance, we disappear. That's part of the mystery of the journey that is powerful to understand and to come to an insight around that and to let that really sink in, that we are impermanent. We don't know when our time will be to leave this incarnation. It's very mysterious. I had a powerful insight into this one time on a two-day retreat with a dear friend of mine. We were up in California at a cabin doing a retreat. We were sitting and walking in silence. And suddenly I looked up and he was walking along doing walking meditation and I just glanced for a second and suddenly it was as if my whole world changed. And what happened was the insight came and I, meant, I shared this in a group today. The insight was this. Hello, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. To everything is hello, goodbye. And that was so powerful. I just, I just started weeping. And I, for three days, I walked around in this state of hello, goodbye. I would see a flower on the ground. I was like, hello, knowing it was going to be goodbye soon. I saw an animal walking in front of me. I would say, hello and they would disappear, goodbye. And I thought of my family, hello, goodbye. All the people in my past, hello, goodbye, hello. Everything is hello, goodbye. Each moment is hello, goodbye. It was very powerful. It changed uh, a lot of how I look at the moment. It was important to see that. So when I don't understand hello, goodbye, I suffer. Because goodbye is goodbye. And if I want something and I hang on, when it's time to say goodbye, what happens? We kind of get dragged along. Joseph always says clinging is rope burn. <laughs> <laughs> right? If you've had that, it's painful. You know, so people come together, relationships come together, and people move together, and they do their work. And then if it's goodbye, it falls. Something else emerges. That happens. Goodbye. Moment to moment. Hello. Goodbye. So we need to understand that's the nature of reality and clinging is suffering. The Buddha is saying, you can't cling to something that's changing moment to moment. We want steadiness. We want to say hello, hello, hello forever. Or maybe we don't. Maybe we're the one that wants to say goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Whatever, whatever side you're on. It comes when it wants, it goes when it wants. We don't have control over that. Things arise and pass. You know, I would love to say hello to just blissful mind states every moment, right? <laughs> you know, so it's important to look at that. It's important to understand that our clinging to what's changing is suffering. And there's a way in which we can learn to let it be. There's a way impermanence is exciting to me. It's kind of this wild ride, right? What would happen if you just let go? <laughs> Right? And you just live in the moment. You know, we have responsibilities, yes. But what happens if we let go of the extra? Right? And just lived. We learned how to just be. You know, life becomes more adventurous, kind of an excitement to life, you know, every day. Well, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Anything's possible. 
right? We, we live sort of with this wakefulness. It could be a joy, you know, always, wow, what's going to happen now? Don't really know. Let's go take another breath. In-breath, great. Out-breath, great. It's all new. It's fresh. You know, life becomes fresh in that way. So also what we cling to deeply are our beliefs, our whole belief systems, right? So we grow up in a family, we get a set of beliefs and stills, and we carry them along, our banter, right? (laughs) I believe this, I see this, I, you know, and we cling to them. You know, we cling to our stories about ourselves. This is really important to see this in meditation because it's so painful. Whatever story you have about yourself, I'm the fill in the blank, right? I've experienced the past. I've experienced this. There are stories that we make up. And sometimes there are these beautiful fantasies, and sometimes there are stories of tremendous pain and suffering. And we cling to them, right? We sit, they come up. We get lost on that train and we're gone. And the thing about the train is it's just not a few minutes. Some people are on these trains for years, lifetimes. So the moment you wake up and think, oh, this is just a story. This is not happening. That's powerful. We cling to our thoughts and thoughts are not reality. You know, I can sit here and make a story of heaven or I can sit here and make a story of hell and then I live in whichever one I choose. But the thing about it, it's not happening now. You know, a lot of people talk about when they come on retreat, they have all these fantasies and stories. They're very unsatisfying in some way. Even if we, you know, we get bored, we come to the hall, yeah, start planning a trip to the Caribbean, yeah, the Caribbean, and I'll do this, and I'll be on the beach, and you know how we could get, right? Anything but the present moment. <laughs> but it's, in the moment, there's a sense of this is better than my knee pain or better than listening to the birds or the breath or, you know, we, we indulge it a little bit, right? Oh, those few fantasies isn't so bad. But really it's deeply unsatisfying on another level because it's not happening. We're not there. We're not doing those things. <laughs> We're here in this moment. And so that disconnection is, is deeply unsatisfying. So we cling to all of our thoughts, our stories. It's important to see how we work with thoughts. Thoughts are not real. This is huge. Before, when I first started practicing, even a few years after I started practicing, I believed every thought that came into my mind. And then pretty soon, actually thanks to Joseph, Joseph said, turn around and look at your thoughts. They're just little thoughts. And I think, yeah, yeah. And I turned around and I looked at them and I could see arising, passing. They just pass by. They're just passing. They don't belong to us. Thought arises. Emotions arise. We identify with those. We cling on to those. Anger arises. I'm angry. I'm the one angry. So do you see there's a way we're taking ownership of experiences that don't belong to us? It's nature. Do you take responsibility when it rains outside? No, right? That's, some, that's not our business. Neither in some way is this. <laughs> what we experience feels so personal, but it's really not. And it's hard to see that, but if there's a way in which we can not cling, not grasp, allow space, our practice will unfold in a different way.
Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master. He says, do everything with a mind that lets go. Don't accept praise or gain or anything else. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. So it's not easy to do, right? That's the next question, how? <laughs> yeah, sounds good, sign me up. Complete peace. It's challenging because we're so used to identifying with everything. So a real practical tip. When something is happening, we can turn towards it, right? A story in the mind comes because it's interesting to see how it happens. Observe how this process happens. One moment, peace. The next moment, we're in the grip of a hell realm. What happened? Often, it was a thought unnoticed in the mind. And the thought tells us something. We, we get caught. Emotions come. We put the two together and we have a four-alarm fire, right? Out of a beautiful, peaceful day. But if we really look carefully and we can drop out of that, there's a way which we can come out of that into the present moment. That's why the present moment is such a beautiful refuge because we can come out of the insanity. There's an insane part of our mind. And we can, through the practice of meditation, we find refuge from this. We drop out. We come into the present moment. Oh, what's happening? A step. That's what's happening in this moment. I'm not in danger. I'm not a horrible person. I'm feeling the ground. I'm sipping a cup of tea. I'm having a bite of food. That's what's real. Not the stories in our head. They're not reality. In the Native American tradition, they often say that we're dream walkers, right? Everyone's lost in thoughts, right? They think those are reality, but they're not. So we get lost and then we forget that it's just a dream, right? It starts to look more real. The Buddha said, one of my favorite quotes from him, he said, live in joy in love even among those that hate. Live in joy and in health even among the afflicted. Lie in joy in peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still. Even among the troubled, look within and be still. Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. So even in the midst of all of what's happening, we know the sweet joy of the way by the moment. That is the sweet joy. That is the way, the present moment. Can I come back to what's real? Out of the insanity. It's important also with our practice that we have, right now we're kind of dove into the belly of the beast, right? We're at the hospital, we're getting the diagnosis. It's heavy. You know, it's like, oh, man, can I do this? <laughs> you know, so don't worry. We're going to come back up, enlightenment, out freedom the next couple of days. But you have to go in and you have to see what's causing the problem. You know, so kind of pull the roots out. So 
one of the things that's very important to help us on our path to meet ourselves fully is compassion. Understanding compassion is, is pivotal. I have so much more compassion when I understand that when people are acting unskillfully, they're doing it because they don't understand. They're doing it because they think they're going to find happiness there. Even when they kill another person, somebody actually thinks, if I could kill this person, I would be more happy. That's that deluded. So we need to practice compassion for ourselves in our most difficult moments. The Dalai Lama writes, as human beings, we all want to be happy and free from misery. We have learned that the key to happiness is inner peace. The greatest obstacles to inner peace are disturbing emotions such as anger, attachment, fear, and suspicion. While love and compassion and a sense of universal responsibility are the sources of true peace and happiness. So we practice compassion, we meet ourselves fully when we're suffering. Can we meet that moment? You know, so there is desire in the mind. Okay, can I be with this? And just feel the pain of that. Yeah, this is a moment that's hard. And can we care about that? We need love and compassion on this path. I talked about that when I did the metta yesterday. That is, to meet the depths of the confused mind, one needs love and compassion as their greatest weapons, you could say. <laughs> like love and compassion is your armor, right? So the mind is confused, comes up with a story. How do we meet that? If we can meet it with love, we can transform it. It's so impactful and so powerful. There's this little story I like. Author and lecturer Leo Buscalali once talked about a contest he was asked to judge. The purpose of the contest was to find the most caring child. The winner was a four-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, climbed onto his lap, and just sat there. When his mother asked him what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, nothing. I just helped him cry. And so that's what we have to do for ourselves. Right? We are that. Sometimes we have to help ourselves in the, the moments where it's difficult. Meeting ourselves with compassion. Wisdom and compassion are the wings of awakening. Through the mindfulness, you're cultivating wisdom. Through seeing the Four Noble Truths, you're cultivating wisdom. The other half is the compassion. It also has to be there. Otherwise, our <coughs> days become filled with torment, right? Because when we see the confusion of the mind, we take it so personally. Can we just see that it's confusion? Another little example of compassion. I don't know if you guys can see this. It's little tiny babies. They're twins. This was in Newsweek magazine. It's very cute. I might post this up there. It's a picture from an article called The Rescuing Hug. The article details the first week uh, in the life of a set of twins. Uh, apparently, each were in their respective incubators, and one was very, very ill and not expected to live. A hospital nurse who became very attached to these twins, um, she fought deeply against the hospital rules. 
and placed the babies in one incubator. And so here these babies were just a few days old. When they were placed together, the healthier of the two, the strong one, threw an arm over her little sister in an endearing embrace. The small baby's heart finally stabilized and her temperature rose to normal. So these two, very sweet. And so sometimes that's what we're doing for each other and ourselves, you know. Somebody needs help, they lean on us, we hold them up, they get better. We lean on someone else, they help us, so we can heal ourselves. We're all in this together. We're all on the journey. The interesting thing about the ship, vision I always have of us on this great ship, often we're just going, you know, rowing, rowing, rowing. The whole world is attached to that ship, and we're all rowing together. It's important to have this kind of compassion that there's no right or wrong here. It's confusion. It's ignorance. It's not knowing. It's not understanding the way things are. We're all innocent. There's no one here guilty of anything. If we took a path that led us in a certain direction, we did it because we thought it was going to mean happiness. In Buddhism, there's no sin. It's unskillful and skillful. What leads to happiness is skillful. What leads to suffering is not so skillful. It's just that simple. So we can free ourselves of the guilt and shame or whatever it is, whatever might be blocking the ability to love yourself is really important. Thich Nhat Hanh, some of you may have heard this from the California crew that's here. <laughs> My favorite poem is, You Are Me. He writes, You are me and I'm you. It is obvious that we enter our. You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you do not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am here to bring you peace, and you are here to bring me joy. So compassion, Four Noble Truths, it's a hard one to open to. It's a hard one to see, but it's the liberating one. If we can come down into looking at ourselves clearly with honesty, we can learn to let go. Let that be your mantra at this retreat. May I learn to let go and we're not even let go, let be. <laughs> can I just be with whatever's here, right? Can I stop clinging? Can I just relax a little bit? Desire is going to be there, okay? High desire, bow to the desiring mind. But we don't have to follow it, right? We just wait and something else arises. That goes, something else comes desire, then peace, then maybe another desire again. It's all changing. But freedom is found through letting go. That's the very heart of the teachings in some way. Can we let go? Can we just be? So let your practice be simple while you're here. Let your needs be simple. You know, take what's offered. See if you can be okay with that. You know, it's a training. We train here. Can we practice a little renunciation? So we make sure we put our stuff away, just follow the schedule. Can I just allow this to be that time 
to explore what is it like to let go, not needing anything, not trying to get something. So I think I'll end this talk with one of my favorite um, little readings here by the great Zen master Hukasai. Hukasai says, Hukasai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention and notice. He says, keep looking and stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything's alive. Shells, building, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside of us. He says, let the world live inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. Doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. Doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. So he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. So thank you very much for your attention.